You're listening to PolarPod from the Oxford University Polar Forum. Hello everyone, welcome back to PolarPod. This is episode two of our mini-series on carbon in the ground. I'm Sam Cornish. I'm Roberta Wilkinson. And we are your co-hosts. Now Sam's been speaking to some Arctic scientists who are experts on carbon in the ground. And last episode, we heard from Yeppe Christensen about how carbon gets into the ground and the sorts of conditions that help to keep it there. Organic matter in the ground is much like food. And we use the analogy of spaghetti bolognese because it gives you the sense of the way that it's made up of a tangle of long molecules based on carbon chains with smaller molecules thrown in there like a tasty sauce. (laughs) Mm, Yes, and microbes love to devour this spaghetti bolognese releasing greenhouse gases as they go. And at the end of the last episode, we heard about how coldness inhibits this decomposition of organic matter by microbes. And so it's a bit like shoving your spag bowl in the freezer. Exactly. And that's where we've got to now. We're turning our attention to the great freezer of the north with its huge stores of organic matter. If you remember the dog analogy from the last episode, we heard how the Amazon rainforest was like a West Highland white terrier in terms of the amount of carbon that it stores, whereas the permafrost ground of the north is like a Great Dane. So a lot bigger, basically. And we'll be finding out how permafrost is responding to global warming and how something as simple as the ground thawing can cause massive problems for infrastructure. Stay with us. more about permafrost, I spoke to Professor Chris Byrne. So um, my name is Chris Byrne. I work at Carleton University in Ottawa, and um, I've been working in the Western Arctic and in the Yukon for the last 40 years on permafrost issues. At the moment, I'm the president of the International Permafrost Association. And to start with, I asked Chris just how much of our ground is actually permafrost. Yes, for the places where there is actually permafrost, that is where the ground remains at or below zero Celsius for two or more years, it's something like 14 million square kilometers, which is something like 14% of the the Northern Hemisphere. And that includes lots of Siberia. It includes the um, Tibetan Plateau. It includes something like a third of Canada, and it includes large portions of Alaska. Permafrost covers a vast area of land, but we can't treat it all as the same. It is extraordinarily variable, and it's variable in two principal ways. The first is the temperature varies. And this variation of the ground temperature is due to a range of factors. So you have local variations according to local differences in the environment, such as how wet or dry it is, what the vegetation is like there, whether on a south or north facing slope, etc., And these environmental factors affect the way that the ground heats up in the summer and cools down in the winter, so that's why it affects the ground temperature. The other important thing to consider, aside from local differences, is how far north you are. In southern permafrost regions... Characteristically, the winter is shorter, there may be be more snow in the south because it's generally a warmer environment, so there's more precipitation. And snow insulates the ground, keeping it warmer in the winter, but equally shields it from the sun when the sun comes up in the springtime. Further north, there's less snow because it's a drier environment, but at the same time, 
the winter may be a lot longer. It may be for seven to eight months of the year in comparison with in the south where around Whitehorse in, in northwest Canada, it's around about six months of the year. So, so that gives an indication of how things can be different. And that's manifest in the ground temperature. So that in some places, the ground temperature may, may be on an annual basis. You know, in the Western Arctic now, it's about minus six on an annual basis. I wish should say that in the 1970s, it's about minus nine. So there's been a significant increase in temperature over that period, whereas it, to the southern southerly regions, it used to be about minus one, and now it's about minus a half. At what depth? At, at this would be at a, at a level where um, there is relatively little change in temperature over the year. So that depth would be about 50, 10 to 20 meters depth. So that's temperature. And then the second side of it is the ice content of the ground. And there are vast areas of the north, in northern Canada, for example, in the Canadian Shield, it's mostly bedrock and there's relatively little ice in the ground. And whether the bedrock is frozen or thawed makes hardly any difference to the integrity of that material. Um, on the other hand, uh, there's large areas of uh, the Yukon and the Western Canadian Arctic where there's a lot of material that is sedimentary. And that material uh, has a high water content and where there's a substantial amount of ice in the ground, then the response of the ground to change is, you know, noticeable. And that's because when the ground thaws, the ice that was making up a large part of that ground and sort of knitting it together, holding it together, turns to water. So the ground ice content is really the index that we are most concerned about in terms of the sensitivity of the environment to disturbance. OK, so there are two big things then that make permafrost ground different in different places. So temperature and ground ice content, yeah? Yeah, exactly. And Chris told me that as these properties change, so too does the response of permafrost to climate change. And we'll look at that in more detail later. But first, I just want to talk briefly about thickness of permafrost. And this is something that's related to the temperature of the ground. Um, so... As you go down in the earth, as you know, Roberta, the, the temperature warms up ultimately as you go f deeper into the earth. Um, but if it's very, very cold at the surface, then it can actually be freezing for quite a long way down. So in northwest Canada and Alaska, in parts of those regions anyway, the permafrost can be up to 700 metres thick. And in Siberia, it can even be twice that thickness. So this raises another interesting point, which is that it takes a really long time for this thickness of ground to cool down and freeze. But also on the flip side, it takes a long time for it to warm up and thaw. Permafrost is a historical phenomenon, as well as a, a phenomenon associated with the being in equilibrium with the present conditions. The permafrost doesn't come and go like you switch the light on and off in a, in a classroom or in a room. Permafrost is, it has a persistence, which means that there will be permafrost for the foreseeable future and for the unforeseeable future. It's going to be very, very difficult to get rid of 700 metres of permafrost. OK, that, that sounds good. That sounds promising, no? Well, wait one second. It's not going to be difficult to affect the top metre of permafrost. That's, very, that's happening right now all over the place. And remember, Roberta, that's where much of the carbon is. Oh, in the top, most of the carbon is in the top bit. And that's the bit that's melting, okay. Exactly. But nonetheless, he does raise a really interesting point, which is that in some ways permafrost can be resilient to change. The rate of thaw of the permafrost is something that declines with time. In other words, to start with, the thawing is quick. 
But as time goes by, the thawing slows down. Okay, so why is this? Well, here's something you need to know. At the very surface of the ground in permafrost regions, there's a layer that thaws in the summertime, and that layer is known as the active layer. And so if permafrost is in general thawing due to climate change, what that means is that active layer is thickening over time. And the rate of thaw at the base of the active layer, where the frozen ground starts, is determined by the flow of heat through that active layer. Essentially what's happening is that the top of permafrost is, let, let's say that's where zero is. Zero degrees Celsius. And the ground surface is at some other temperature on a mean annual basis, let's say plus two. So between the top of permafrost and the top of the ground, there's a two degree Celsius difference. Now, when the permafrost is near to the surface, it might be two degrees over a meter. So the temperature gradient is, is two. But when, when the permafrost has gone down to two meters, then the temperature gradient is one one degree per meter. And then when it goes to four meters, it's half a degree per meter. And the rate of heat uh, flow through a medium is proportional to the temperature gradient. As the permafrost descends in the ground, the temperature gradient reduces. And as a result, the energy reaching the permafrost also reduces. And that's why the rate of thaw declines. So the thawed layer almost starts to insulate the frozen stuff below it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And as that thawed layer thickens, it acts to slow down the transfer of heat to the top of the permafrost. Yeah, okay. And what that means is that the permafrost is resilient. Maybe not the top meter, maybe not the top two meters. However, Chris says... If we have, uh, let's say, 15 meters of permafrost, then it's going to take something like a thousand years to get rid of it. And here's another little physics-y detail that plays into the hands of permafrost resilience. The interesting thing about that is that the thawing of permafrost involves energy flowing through a thawed material because it goes through unfrozen ground to get to the permafrost. But when you're growing permafrost, the energy is extracted through a frozen material. And the thermal conductivity of frozen ground is much higher than the thermal conductivity of thawed ground. So actually, there's an asymmetry between the rate of thaw and the rate of growth, given the same difference in temperature above or below zero. So it's actually easier to restore permafrost, or easier in inverted commas, than it is to thaw it. And, and what that means is that in a, in a climate which is fluctuating, because all climate has some variation, it's actually more difficult to get rid of permafrost than we might think, because a short period of very cold temperature can restore a substantial amount of permafrost, which might take, you know, three or four times as many warm years to thaw. So the key point is that permafrost has the ability to grow much more quickly than it melts. Actually, the melting process is a lot slower and it sort of insulates itself. Yeah, that is generally the case. It doesn't quite hold in all environments, though. In some environments where there's lots of water, the thaw can proceed at a much faster pace, and this is known as rapid thaw. But we're going to learn about that more in the next episode. Okay, but in general, permafrost seems kind of quite stable to climatic changes, right? So that isn't that quite a good thing? Yeah, for sure. This, this resilience that Chris has described is absolutely a good thing. But unfortunately, the nature of climate change in the Arctic doesn't play into the strengths of permafrost. However, Arctic winters are warming faster than Arctic summers. Yes, and that's a very important point because um, many people think that permafrost thaw is associated with the summer. 
that the summertime is when we have temperatures above zero. So that's when the thawing takes place. But actually the thawing is much, much more sensitive to winter conditions. And the reason for that is that during the winter time, the ground cools off. And if the winter is not very cold, the ground doesn't cool off very much. So we don't extract very much heat from the ground in the winter, in a warm winter. And that means that the following summer, we don't have to give that much ground as much heat to bring it to its melting temperature. So the thawing can start to occur very early on in the summer. Whereas previously, when we were cooling it very nicely in the wintertime, the thawing didn't take place until much later in the summertime. So there was less time available for the thaw. So the association of warm winters with with warming of the ground in, in permafrost regions is very clearly demonstrated, but it's not something that we think about very carefully. We think that if the summers are not warming up, then we're good, but actually we're not. Uh-oh, not as good as I thought. Yeah, it's quite concerning. And it relates to something else that I found fascinating about how permafrost is responding to climate change. Chris says that permafrost decay is faster in the coldest regions in the north rather than in the south. Listen to this. We used to think that the southern permafrost, which is the warmest permafrost, would be where we would see the, the, the initial impacts of climate change on permafrost. But actually, it's in the far north. And the reason for that is that the ground that thaws every summer, the little thin layer of ground that we call the active layer, is thinnest in the far north. And as Chris has already told us, the thinner that active layer, the more vulnerable the permafrost is to warming. So the response of permafrost to climate warming has been demonstrated most effectively in the northern regions rather than at the southern limits. That doesn't mean that the impacts are not financially more important at the southern limits because that's where everybody is and that's where the infrastructure is which needs to be repaired when things go wrong. Right, so the impacts of thawing permafrost it's actually not just about greenhouse gases. It's also having an impact on people's kind of houses and, and daily lives and in the infrastructure. What, because it makes the ground sort of unsteady? Yeah, it particularly impacts on infrastructure, houses, pipelines, anything that you want to stay in a straight line, basically. Okay. It can be quite hard to visualise how exactly the thawing of ground can do this. But Luke Jonge Jans. Jonge Jans. Jonge Jans. Yeah, that was very good. Okay. <laughs> Who we heard from in the previous episode, if you remember, she's a permafrost scientist. She just finished her PhD from the Alfred Wegener Institute in Germany. And Luca told me about a fun way that she was able to help people experience this firsthand at a science yeah, festival. I mean, it's really cool. I mean, we just took our little shovel. We went, it was in a park, it was outside. So we took our little shovel and filled up a bucket for the sand from the hotel we stayed in. We got the ice cubes and then in the forest we went to get some moss. Okay, let me explain what they were doing with this. They had a one by one meter um, box where we also had a landscape. And the landscape was made of the sand that they collected with moss on the top for like a green covering. But they also mixed in the ice into the sand beneath the moss to mimic ice-rich permafrost. And we had actually little trains and little people standing there and a mammoth and a polar bear, even though he was very far off the coast. Um, and there they could also see what would happen to the infrastructure. So the train, we put the train line, um, the rails over, over such a big ice wedge that we made. And then you could see that it was totally destroyed at the end of the day. So that, 
this visual aspect and the touching of the sediments that was there, like, like the kids saying, oh, it's so cold. And it's like, yeah, that's permafrost. Yeah, and oh, that's it's smelly. Cool. Yeah, that's microbes right now decomposing the organic matter. But it's really cool. Yeah, I love that. And this is just a demonstration, but the issue is totally real. Chris told me about a road in the Yukon called the Alaska Highway. Where the, the, the road was built on permafrost. And in the 1980s and 1990s, even though the road did affect the temperature of the ground, it didn't bring the temperature of the ground above zero. So roads, by virtue of being dark, get warm when the sun's out. And I think this is something that we're all familiar with. You know, they heat up a lot in the summer. Yeah, because you see uh, mirages on roads right? yeah. when it's really hot. Yeah, mirages. I mean, that those sort of heat shimmers. Yeah, even in the UK, like when it's really, really warm. Even in the happening. UK. <laughs> even here. But now, with the climate change that has taken place, the ground temperature beneath these structures has increased above zero. And in, in those cases, there is inexorable degradation of permafrost beneath the road. Uh, and so there are sections of the road, and I'm thinking of about 200 kilometers of road between uh, a place, a settlement called Burwash Landing, which is the... Um, home of the Kluwani First Nation and Beaver Creek, which is the home of the White River First Nation in southwestern Yukon, where if you if you decided you were going to drive your vehicle at the speed limit, you'd lose your front end. Right. It, the amount of degradation of, of, of and substance of the road is is substantial in in those areas. There are places now where it has become necessary for the highways department to to intervene drastically to prevent thawing beneath the road. There's one location which is called Dry Creek. And last winter, they completed a project that is uh, over only 500 meters of road. So it's over half a kilometer. They had to install 58 thermosiphons, which are a passive chilling mechanisms for the ground in order to prevent 12 meters of almost pure ice, which we think is ice relic from the last ice age. Uh, from beginning to be thawed by the warm temperatures emanating from the overlying road. And that cost $4 million. So for half a kilometre of road, the investment was $4 million. Now, if you scale that up to 200 kilometres of road, obviously not the whole needs it, but something like, let's say, 150 kilometres of that needs money put into it, you're looking at close to a billion dollars. And that it's just impossible to think of that sort of investment being made uh, on a you know across across the permafrost regions of the northern hemisphere. So if we don't want to have to spend all this money on cooling down roads, we have to stop climate change from happening. We have to um, start to decarbonize. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, this is a really powerful example of the financial costs that can be incurred upon society due to climate change. And the more that we can limit the warming, the lesser those costs will be. But having said that, you know, even in a best case scenario, it's still likely that permafrost decay and the resulting changing shape of the ground will be a big problem in the Arctic regions over the next decades. And so what that means is that we have to start thinking about the impact of permafrost degradation on our daily lives. And all of this matters because people live on this ground. For me, it's a cool study object, but that for them... It's really just the way of life. I mean, they just live there. It's just their ground, you know. And this is also important for the way that science is done in these regions. So one of the things that I think is really, really incumbent upon scientists is to recognize that they are working 
in somebody else's home. The permafrost regions of the Arctic have been home to indigenous communities for thousands of years. And, and that means that you need to have a different relationship with the people of the area that you are working in than you might have needed 40 years ago when I started. I was curious about how Chris's perspective on this had developed through his career. I had no sensitivity to the North as a home. I, I thought of the North as a resource frontier. So I thought of it as a place where development was going on, that the future of industrial economies would be using more and more. I didn't think of it. I was told about this, but I didn't think of it as being a place that was where people for generations had lived. And that's something that I grew into slowly over time, but particularly in the last five years, I've become very conscious of the nature of the environment as being uh, somebody's somebody's home, just like the house I'm living in in Ottawa is my home. Indigenous communities, or First Nations communities in Canada, have faced incredible challenges due to settlement and industrialization of their lands. And today they're also having to contend with climate change and permafrost degradation beneath their feet. But their voices have historically been underrepresented in scientific research. As Chris points out, not only is this a justice issue, but their involvement can also strengthen science. As I get older, I'm more convinced by those who think of science as being a particular sort of thought process, rather than being as the only way to solve certain problems. And I think a thought process is richer when more people are involved in the discussion and can at least sort of understand what the thinking is, but they can also respond to that thinking and be part of the creation of this well-motivated belief. So at another point in our conversation, Chris told me that he sees science as the construction of well-motivated belief. Basically, it's the, the process of coming to a belief that you have very good reasons to believe in. Because if we have other people involved, then the motivations will be stronger because their own views will become integral to the process. And when it's integral to the process, then they realise that their position is being taken seriously. And this exchange of knowledge and ideas goes both ways. Chris also spoke about going into the field with people that live in the north of Canada from First Nations communities. And from them, I have learned an enormous amount that I would never have thought about uh, previously, just because of the way they say, oh, well, when we were here, we saw this, you know, before, or we saw this two years ago, or we, when I was here three weeks ago, this is what we saw, and so on. So we begin to think about what they, what they consider to be important observations and, and that is sometimes very important because I don't necessarily think about the environment in the same way as somebody who, who lives in the environment 24-7. I'm always surprised at how the nature of, of what some people might consider to be anecdotal observation often leads you into thinking in a new way about something. And as a result of field observation and discussion with people in the field, it has been my experience that we arrive at unforeseen, not necessary solutions, but things that we might do that may assist us to either comprehend the problem or in fact to be able to deliver a relatively pragmatic solution. 
Chris is very strong on the value of these conversations and of thinking about things in a new way. For him, it's inextricably tied up with the importance of the imagination in science. Some people regard science, just like they regard engineering, as being the application of some well-known principles to a problem that can be you know, defined. And once it's defined, the principles lead to the solution. But actually, very rarely is that the case. Normally, we're in a position where, we, where a problem is a problem because we can't solve it easily, that we have to try different routes to get to a potential solution. So I think one of the, one of the things that we don't, we don't encourage enough is the use of the imagination. And this led us on, Roberta, to a more in-depth conversation about philosophy and the nature of science. And I'd love to show that to you, but I think we'll have to do that another time. I'm looking forward to that. But what have you got in store for us next episode? So next time we'll be learning about rapid thaw processes and how scientists measure the greenhouse gases that are produced when frozen ground thaws. We'll also be taking a look at a landscape feature created by permafrost thaw, which is known to locals as the gateway to the underworld. Oh my goodness, that is, uh, I wasn't expecting something with quite so much of a Stranger Things vibe from (laughs) from a podcast about polar science. And then cut to Kate Bush running up that hill. (laughs) Which you will only get if you watch season four of Stranger Things. And one last thought before we leave you. Chris spoke today about the importance of including people from indigenous communities in the process of science that takes place in the Arctic, such that science can serve their interests and is conducted in a respectful and inclusive manner, but also so that science can benefit from the generations of environmental expertise held by indigenous people. At the Polar Forum, we really believe this is important too, and we're currently fundraising to pay for Indigenous delegates to attend our international workshop called the Arctic Horizon Scan, which is taking place in Oxford in September. This will be a chance for people to come together and discuss and determine research priorities for the Arctic. The Indigenous Circumpolar Council highlights the need for Indigenous people to be involved in shaping research priorities through fora like this, and we couldn't agree more. And if this resonates with you too, you can directly support the attendance of Indigenous delegates by going to our website and giving to this fund. Just visit polar.ox.ac.uk slash campaign. PolarPod comes to you from the Oxford University Polar Forum. It's co-hosted by Sam Cornish and me, Roberta Wilkinson. Reporting production and original music by Sam Cornish and sound design by Jihad Sahib.